You're listening to A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. And thank you for tuning in. It is right before the start of a new year and a new season for us. It's going to be our sixth season. We always appreciate you tuning in to listen to this podcast. We are going to be listening back again to a few of our previous interviews from 2022 conversations that we had with authors. And that includes chats with acclaimed best-selling authors like Jonathan Evison and Lisa Scotellini. Jonathan Evison, the author of Lawn Boy, West of Here, and his latest, which came out in 2022, titled Small World. And then Lisa Scotellini, one of the modern masters of domestic thrillers, with her latest, What Happened to the Bennetts. Lisa Scotellini is a number one best-selling author and Edgar Award-winning writer. She had an acclaimed work of historical fiction two years prior, titled Eternal, but one of her most recent books, What Happened to the Bennetts, is about Jason Bennett, who is a suburban dad who owns a court reporting business, but one night his life takes a horrific turn. He is driving his family home after his daughter's field hockey game when a pickup truck begins tailgating them on a dark stretch of a lonely road, and suddenly two men jump from the pickup and pull guns on Jason, demanding the car, and after a horrific flash of violence, its life has changed forever. And after receiving a visit from the FBI after that, the agents tell the Bennetts that the carjackers were members of a dangerous drug trafficking organization and that now the family are in the crosshairs. The agents advise the Bennetts to enter into the witness protection program right away, and they have no choice but to agree. But the thing about the witness protection program is that it's designed to protect criminal informants, not law-abiding families. So, taken from all that they know, they're trapped in an unfamiliar life, the Bennetts begin to fall apart at the seams, and then Jason learns a shocking truth and realizes that he has to take matters into his own hands. So here's our conversation with Lisa Scotellini about that book, What Happened to the Bennetts. I got my dogs out of the room for you. I was like, okay, this is now, now I miss them. <laughs> <laughs> so I, let me, let me start, start you off with a little bit of a curveball here, Lisa. Um, Go for it. You were on our podcast a little while ago and I don't know if I made an impression whatsoever, but my name happens to be Jeff Milo. And I noticed that the villain of your book. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> It's incredibly close to my own name. Oh, man. Well, first of all, I do remember you, but I didn't remember that when I wrote it. Isn't that interesting? I'm so sorry. Well, I'm, well I think I'm honored. I think I'm again. I, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe no, not. No, it is not you. It is not. You're charming, and he's a little not. Uh, indeed. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about writing this book. I guess, first of all, tell me about, you know, kind of switching gears the last time you were you were talking about this wonderful historical fiction book that you wrote. Now you're back into something, something of the thriller territory, but talk about jumping into one pool and coming back to the other. What was that like? Right, It's interesting because, you know, you know what I tell you, I'm going to blow your mind now. My daughter always says to me, I'm going to blow your mind right now, mom. Uh, But the truth is they ain't that different. Oh yeah. I mean, I really come to, now that I did it, I taught myself. Because always I'm a little afraid. I'm like, oh, my God, you can't write historical fiction. And then I kind of did with Eternal. I'm like, all right, maybe you can do that. And then I go, oh, my God, now it's going to be so different. And then I said, it's not different at all. No, no. And that's when I realized, right, like, Lisa, you're just dumb. Because, honestly, I'm always writing about the same things. And the, the things are 
justice and love and family. That, that's what I figured out. Like, you know, if, if you're me, which maybe you should have a little more insight, you're kind of like working from the outside in. So you're like, like when you decorate a room, like I'm like, this is my office. Like I, I keep picking pinks and reds. I guess I like pink and red. <laughs> it's kind of weird. So anyway, I wrote Eternal a love triangle set in Mussolini's Italy. And then I write what happens to the Bennetts and they both end up being about love and family and justice. And so then what you really realize is that this setting, whether it's Mussolini or the time, whether it's the 1930s or 20 is completely, well, we know what that distinction is. It's form over substance. Mm -hmm. That's why I kind of don't cop to any of this genre, even this genre convention, because, you know, uh, I mean, if you, I do read my online reviews. I always, and I love that because I care about what readers think. And, uh, you know, I had people who came to Eternal, which was the historical fiction going, I never read her before because she writes thrillers and I don't read that, but I like this book. And I know I'm going to have people coming to the thriller book going, I only read historical fiction, but I like this. And that's because readers are great, mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. They have an open mm -hmm. mind. Mm -hmm. Reading builds empathy. You become more inclusive in so many different ways. And I'm getting off the point now, but so that in a way it wasn't that different. And I'm going to go back to historical fiction and then I'm going to do thrillers and, and humor. And you realize you're all just laying yourself bare, whether it's something funny and silly or something, a really heartfelt feeling like, you know, what happened to Ben, it's his character. I realized when his writing is a lot like my dad. I was like, ah, oh, it's your dad. That's, that's dad. Like, oh, where did that come from? And then you, then you're off and running. What I'm, what I'm hearing is you, you can't just let it be a pitch. You can't distill it down to a pitch. You can't say, all right, et eternal World War II, Italy, love triangle. Or you can't say Bennett's witness protection, you know, tragedy, crime. It, it is all, it always comes back to family. You know what I mean? With your yeah, books. Yeah, you're right. And you, you would, uh, I mean, I'm pro enough to know that I can just, I make it distilled to a pitch. I'll tell you sure. because it when it happened, I was on the uh, Today Show and somebody, it was a while ago and somebody came up and they started doing this. I don't know if this is video, but they're flashing their fingers at me, seven fingers, mm -hmm. seven. And I said, what are you trying to tell me? I have seven minutes, but I know in TV, that's a lot of time in TV. They'll go, I said, oh, you tell me I have seven seconds. No, they're saying, no, you have seven words. <laughs> when they ask you what it's about answer in seven words and i was like oh my god now i have to tell you since that happened to me is the best thing well one of the best things that ever happened to me because i was like now i actually distill it and i actually put that on my for people who are listening who want to write you know it's actually helpful mm -hmm. so what what happened to the bennett's a carjacked family goes into witness protection that's probably close and then I go, that's the story you want to tell Lisa. And I don't write with an outline. So I go, okay, that's your story. Is this going to tell your story or is this going to be tangential or BS or whatever? And if so, you can write it if you want to, but it can't survive in second draft. That's almost so, like So, yeah, but, but it isn't really a pitch. You're right to say that, Jeff. That's You're a, absolutely right. That's like intensive haiku writing that you did just there. Um, <laughs> tell me. Right. And then, but just, just tell me where that came from because it just seems like it is such a, a ripe and and evocative premise uh to 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 go into witness protection and i think that let me just say not a spoiler just the surreality of having to experience that is compelling enough um before even some of the more thrillery aspects kick in just that adjustment period is so compelling the way you wrote that i guess talk about where that idea came from for a book witness protection oh, thank you for that. it really came from me driving around my neighborhood and being tailgated 
Oh, dear. <laughs> I mean, a lot of, I, I find that a lot of novels, and I end up having ideas, but they come out of what if. Like, oh, God, so basically you're living your life imagining disasters. This could be life with an Italian mother, because honestly, my mother was like that. You know, that running with scissors, like, you'll slip, the pen will go in your eye. There's, wet leaves are horrifying. So you end up <laughs> imagining disasters and probably work, 10 years of therapy, I'm trying to figure my way through it. So... I do think that's where it came from because I don't like being tailgated and I always move and I'm like, just get out of my way, dude. I'm just trying to live my life and be calm and usually listen to an audio book or a podcast in the car. So I don't, I'm not stressing when I drive. And so then I thought, oh God, what if you were carjacked? And then what if that? And luckily I'm, I've had these um, experts now. So I call up my guy in the FBI who actually, and then I find a guy who worked in witness security and I go, what, what's it like? Like, cause we all have ideas from, TV and what what is it really like? And then you that's when you come to understand that, you know, it's a program designed to protect criminals against other criminals. It works less well when it's a family. And I wanted to also use the world we live in, the connections we have. Look at us. We spoke before. Here you are. We're all connected up every which way. You're going to take this family. They don't even get to say goodbye. Right. Right. It's so it's like you said the pandemic was bad, at least the isolation and not to make light of it, because we all have people who we lost people or I have someone very sick from it still. But at least you could communicate this way. Well, now you can't say goodbye. His wife can't say goodbye to her mother. You endanger people when you say where you are. At the same time, you have these crime bloggers who didn't exist when I started writing so long ago, right? God bless them. I always think they're interesting because true crime is fascinating to me for the reason that fictional crime is. Well, now you have ordinary people solving crimes, real crimes. Right. And what effect does that have upon a guy who reminds my, my, my father and that he was so important to me, but never really thought of himself as my hero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is, and you know, that men to a certain extent, I think it's so imposed upon them. What is a hero? I mean, I love all the superhero movies. I just got back from the, the last Superman and they're all flying around against all odds. Well, what is a hero when you don't really conceive of yourself that way? That's his, that's the problem of Jason Bennett. When his family is struck into circumstances that require him to be heroic and also require his wife to be heroic, what will they do to get out of it? And so then how do you survive becomes the exact same question that I answered in Eternal during Mussolini's Italy. Yeah. How do you be a hero? And then also what what Jason is thrown into in the family, too, is this the stakes of. Well, what 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 it actually means to be an anchor for my family, I have to do that now. But I also feel compelled to solve this crime. Um, and right. he's pulled apart, and that's that's so compelling. I want to also say this is one of the most effective books that involves, and and very realistically, the internet and social media, and that portion of the book. Because it's not a spoiler, the family has to go into witness protection, right, right. and then uh, the the inevitable conclusion of that is that all of your friends would would probably panic, and they would then start what would they start doing? Posting about it on Facebook, right, <laughs> right, right. Which kind of feeds right. into the title, but um, yeah. Did you re- you must have realized that early on that the idea of social media would become such a big part of this actual narrative. Yeah, and I didn't go into it that way because I, I just didn't, you know, you don't want to write a novel about social media. 
Right. But I right. But I live in the world like everybody else. And what were you going to say? You oh, say? I was just going to say the. I don't want to spoil too much, but they they That's get right. they get they get a hint of how their friends are panicking, even though they can't right. really use social media, and that twists them up even more. They can't shout out to their friends. We're okay. You know what I yeah, mean? You can't. That's oh. right. I mean, the first phone call, any horrible disaster, we don't take people through it, but people say I'm okay. When my daughter, she lives in New York, I just just text me when you get home. I just want to know you're okay. They can't do that. And that's such a good point. I wish I had made more of it in the book. And I think I made something of it. But Jeff, you bring oh, it yeah, up. You that you can't, well, thank you. That you can't, and and you don't want to write about social media, but you are a creature of it. My phone's right here. I'm on, I, I live alone. I love Twitter. Mm-hmm. I'm a Twitter. And it, all my social media is me. It's organic. There's no massive machine. So you go, well, that would naturally happen. And I follow this stuff. And I'm a big fan of the crime blogs, for example. I love what they do. And I love I love the times we live in, as complex and as hard as it is, that it's much more democratic. That reviewing isn't the hands of a few, mm-hmm. right? Reviewing books isn't the hands. It's everybody online. Mm-hmm. It's um, law enforcement isn't the hands of a few. We all And we also, by the way, you cannot write a modern thriller without understanding the changes. We have views about the Supreme Court we didn't have 15 years ago. We have views about the FBI. We have views about modern policing. And all of those have to exist in this novel in a realistic way, in a way that's not didactic or shoehorned in, but just part of the fabric of everyday life when everyday life is upended. And that's what I was really trying to do. It, it was a cool book to write. It was, it was. And, and then my last question would just be the one obvious similarity between this and historical fiction is they, they both require research. I think anyone out there should know that authors are also doing that legwork. You also had to talk to other folks, talk to um, folks who could inform you about the FBI or court reporters, etc. And I just right. want to say the FBI characters are in this are also great characters in and of themselves, great, well-rounded characters. And, they have a job to do, and that's that's very powerful as well. Right, right. And I appreciate you saying that because I think you're trying to write a realistic character, and it's not based on anybody per se, but you realize that everyone's interests are not necessarily aligned in this situation. And so Jason has to find his way through. And I also love that he's a court reporter and kind of has his own business as a lawyer. I mean, you become very aware that there's a lot of people that are law adjacent. Let's say my daughter would say that, right? But they know an awful lot about law. They're not lawyers, but you don't need a law, law degree to know about law. In fact, that's all point about the crime bloggers. You, what is justice is a human question. And it involves what's right and wrong. You'll have it about Ukraine. I'm pointing because my TV's there. You know, what's right and wrong? Where where do you stand up for it? Where do you not? And and what is the cost of that? Isn't that the question we have right now with Ukraine? If we stand up for Ukraine, do we engender world war? Wow, that mm-hmm. is a question that so so I love writing about things that writ smaller become more palpable and tangible to work through as a family, even in fiction. Yeah. How does the case close? How do we get justice? Exactly. Right. Right. And that was our chat with Lisa Scotellini. 
And now moving on, we'll be revisiting our chat with Jonathan Evison, the writer known for his novels all about Lulu, which won the Washington State Book Award, West of Here, a New York Times bestseller and the winner of the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Award and the Booklist Editor's Choice Award, and the revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, which was, up until recently, currently in talks to potentially be developed into a film. Evson is based in Washington State, and in his teens, he was a founding member and frontman of the Seattle punk band March of Crimes, which included future members of Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. He was born in San Jose, California, but now lives on an island in western Washington with his family. His latest, Small World, is about four modern families who are all on board a passenger train hurtling into the night, but it bounces in between the past and the future going 170 years earlier when their forebears were making their way in a young nation built on grand promises. Each family follows their own path only to find that their destinies are linked inextricably, the culmination of five generations of shared history. So we talk about this conceptual novel of historical fiction with Jonathan Evison, which is titled Small World. Uh, I, I just felt compelled to start with Trains. Is that okay? Let's start with trains. Yeah, whatever you want to do. Because <laughs> I've always been, and I don't think I'm extraordinary in this regard, I've, I've always been fascinated with trains and and also how it is trains are somewhat emblematic of American history or emblematic of at least the uh, the mythos of, of, of America. Is that perhaps where the idea for this book started or at least with the, the import of the transcontinental railroad? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of where the idea of small world was born. It's just this idea of the transcontinental railroad seeking to shrink the world by connecting the, you know, the the two seaboards. Um, yeah, that's one thing I've realized about train people is they're people that are like trains really like trains. You know what I'm saying? And I was more of a casual train person. So it was an education for me. Uh, I had to have many people vet the work, you know, you don't want to get anything wrong with the trains because train enthusiasts are going to call you on it. Like, mm-hmm. uh, what do you mean the third rail? I thought this was a diesel train. And, you know, I mean, I went through a long process of that, which was super helpful. And, you know, you, you got to do that with, with, with any, any, any time you write outside your area of expertise. But uh, also I needed a vehicle for all these characters as well. I needed something, the idea of connection, the railroad connecting things. And then I needed a, you know, a, a vehicle or, you know, kind of a vessel to put all the modern characters in, you know what I mean? Cause when you, when you have this widespread disparate cast of characters, you know, for the reader's sake, they, they need to coalesce and connect in a very tangible way. And I, and I thought that that might also be part of the attraction is the sense of connection, uh, if anyone has picked up your books and just gone to the back and read the blurbs, they'll constantly see words like big and sprawling and epic and scope, etc. But I find that throughout your books, there's always been that theme of how important it is to hold that sense of connection. This is a very big, as you said, 170 years sprawling sense of connection, or even just the sense of connection with our passengers on the train. But connections always been there for you, or at least in uh, my thanks for, I appreciate you realizing that. I mean, I, I have a, the same themes I sort of work with and connection is a big one. Like even in, in, in Lawn Boy, which is a, you know, a talk to you like a friend, first person buildings Vermont, the theme is still in there. You know, mm-hmm. Mike, 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 when he finally finds his way, certainly, you know, realizes that he didn't do this alone and, and sort of pieces together, you know, so the theme, the theme is always there for me. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's the ultimate human theme to me. I mean, we, we, we're born and we die alone. Uh, 
and yet, you know, in order to thrive, we're completely uh, dependent upon others, you yeah. know? I mean, and this stays true throughout our history. I mean, nobody is alive today that ever invented a language, you know, unless right. it's some coding language, you know I mean? So it just goes back and back through time. We're still, we're still connected and still, uh, you know, dependent upon one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was talking about what's emblematic of America and there is the phrase and, and literary mythos of the great American novel. Were you trying to go for that with this one? Uh, or can you just talk about what it takes maybe to pull off a novel like this? I imagine there's a lot of research. I imagine there's a lot of vetting. I'm curious to hear what the reward, what the fulfillment and rewards are of some of that tedium and, and whether or not you're going for the great. Oh, American it novel. wasn't tedious. Good, See, that's good. the thing. That's the reward. The work is the reward. And so this one I sort of cooked up on the eve of my 50th birthday. You know, I was kind of, I, I kind of turned in 50 kind of lit a fire under my butt and I wanted to, I really wanted to swing for the fences with this one. Uh, and I've done that before, like with West of here, but the, the last few novels were a little, not, not necessarily quiet. I mean, they, they had their share of literary pyrotechnics or whatever, but they were more narrowly focused on um, fewer characters. And I just really wanted to, my goal as a writer is to ultimately just to, to play in a high stakes game, you know, to try to, to, to write something that could potentially ruin my career was my goal here. Like if I didn't pull this off, I could fall flat on my face and the whole house of cards goes, I like those high stakes. You know, I like playing in that sort of pressure situation. So it was never tedium partially because see, I hate research. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> uh, people probably assume I like it, but I, I, I kind of hate it. I like the human element of it. I like to talk and interview with people when I have specific questions in mind and things I need to gauge that part, that human connection part is fun, but like book research is just such a quagmire um, that I've actually gotten a lot better at over the years. You know, I've written like 17 books, you know, so it's like I've learned, I used to just tackle research like, well, I better read these nine books. And, and that that's a dangerous proposition because when you're learning about something, you learn all these things that don't have to do with your story, but you're like, man, that's so good. I, I feel obligated to use it. I now have really focused down. To, it, it's really about authenticity. And like, mm-hmm. so I, I really tackle my research specifically about, I know my situations and my scenarios for my characters and I have to, so I can, you know what I'm saying? I, I can, I can, I can do the research in narrower swaths. I pick up a lot of other peripheral knowledge as well, but that focus makes it a, a lot easier. And so does, uh, you know, so does the internet, for, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, I don't depend on the internet as my final source, but I, I can remember a day in as you know, 20 years ago when if I had to figure out if there was a back window and a 67 duster, I had to drive 20 miles, you know, round trip to the library and sit in the reference section. Cause they wouldn't let you check out the, the you know, it would. Ch- and so now I can just, Little things like that you can fact check really quick. What a difference. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, t- just tell me about the what the experience of, of writing this book, because I was just so curious about what your, and you were kind of touching on this, but what your momentum was like as a writer, because you're not necessarily, and I'm not disparaging detective novels, but you're not necessarily writing a thriller where it's one single character, chapter to chapter, with an arrowhead plot going to the solve the mystery. You are it's 2019 Chicago and then it's 1851 on the railroad. And then it's a completely different character. The shifts going on here. um, What was it like to keep that momentum and to, I guess, get into the headspace of so many different people in so many different timelines? 
Yeah. Well, first I'll say that at its root, it really is still Aristotelian dramatics. I mean, it really is an arrowhead. It's just a really big arrowhead. And right. so when, when a character like this, where you do a novel where you're juggling all these characters and stuff and everybody has their own individual line, it becomes less of a pop song and more of an orchestral piece. Symphony. You can't have, yeah, you can't have everybody's line sort of, you know, everybody can't go up and down. You can't reverse the emotional charges with each character simultaneously or the book becomes uh, repetitive or it doesn't it doesn't have that emotional swelling you need. So you have to figure out the way to you're still going for that arc that you would in the in, in, in the in the thriller or the. But you're having to find a way to orchestrate it with all these personalities and all these lines. And it's just a matter of stepping back. And uh, really, it comes down to connective tissue and themes and figuring out how how to make how to make the themes and the connections uh, more central import than the individual characters, really. Like there's the micro level on the macro level of this. And and really, it just starts with thinking like the reader, I think, for me, like just being very aware of the information I'm giving the reader and knowing what buttons I want to push and what experience I'm trying to give the reader. And that makes such a huge difference in terms of conceiving of the thing, because like as a reader, I know that I love convergences and connections. I love making connections as a reader and going, having those aha moments, you know, because ultimately it's a dance between the reader and the writer where the reader's doing everything I'm doing backwards and heels. And so I mean, that's really what I've learned as a writer, just in general, to get better mm-hmm. at this thing after so many dang books, is that really you just always think about the the end user, the reader, who's just really just me at the other end, you know? Right. But it, it's very easy to be authorial about these things. And in my earlier efforts, I was. It was just more about what do I want to say? What do I do? You have to start to say, well, what does a reader need to hear to understand what I'm trying to say? And so that's, that, that's really the ultimate guide to, you know, to – to pulling something this big off, I think, is just to to to, to think of it from the reader. Am I giving the reader too much here? Can the, is the reader going to make this connection? Is the reader going to make that connection? Are they seeing the bigger picture? Am I allowing them to step back and and see that these aren't all these disparate vignettes that they are all tied together? And it's an, it, it is an interesting experience and exercise to be a reader in this book because I found myself every time we had a jump back in time, I felt as though I was still a reader. Uh, I guess I was projecting myself across the astral plane. I felt like I was sitting in the train of 2019 constantly, but I was seeing, I don't know, <laughs> visions of the past. Um, so where I felt temporally was very interesting as a reader. Because I was trying to make, I was always conscious of that connection to the present, um, no matter how far you took us back. And we have to get to know these characters rather quickly um, in these kind of vignettes that we check in with them. And I think that the the dialogue really helped me kind of get to know this person. I think that you're, uh, even from page one through two, you kind of get to know this guy just based on how he interacts with people. So the dialogue was a win, um, for sure. Good. And some of the characters, it was almost sort of necessary to make them sort of archetypal mm-hmm. so that, you know, so that the reader already felt a little sense of familiarity. You know what I mean? Um, these are American archetypes, you know, yeah. runaway slaves, gold miners, you know, I mean, they're things that allowed the reader to have some familiarity with so that it wasn't so, you know, obscure, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. they could already feel sort of comfortable and that allowed me to develop a more of an intimacy. To me, it's really just an intimate novel. It's yep. really big in scope, but really it's, it's like all my books. It's just really about character at the end of the day mm-hmm. and how, how, how I can sublimate the themes 
inside the within the characters you know and rather than having the characters you know be my play actors to paint the theme i want i just let i let the characters lead me to a certain extent there's a a line that has stuck out to me and it's probably within the first 50 pages and i think that it's a spoken from a parent to a child and the the parent says it's all about the journey and i have been i've been hearing several artists use a variation of that phrase as kind of a mantra of staving off disenchantment or maintaining motivation uh it is kind of a powerful statement um and it feels kind of clean but you know all these characters no matter what timeline they are in are experiencing hardship or frustration or burnout or existentialism or ennui or uncertainty so it really is not it doesn't feel as clean cut as someone simply telling you ah don't worry it's all about the journey but but life kind of is and that's what really got me about this book and i can't really articulate it how we want it to be easy, but it really isn't. And I think that this cast really drove that home for me. I don't have a question there, but I'm just throwing that at you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can glean the question there. Actually, yeah. I mean, I mean, well, for me, that that I mean, that's that's almost like a little Easter egg for me. There's yeah. there's a couple of them in the book where where uh, you know uh, Nora talks about how a novel is like a little small world in itself, and, and the escape of the, these are writing this book for me was all about the journey, and it always is. It's not. I trust in the process, you know, that's why I'm never afraid of the work. There were seven characters, I think, in this book that are gone, 200 pages just gone from the book. But none of that work was wasted. It's just at a certain point, I realized that these characters couldn't coalesce. I needed to create that convergence. And it was harder, say, to get these characters on the modern day train, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way that wasn't herky jerky or whatever. And but it's always about trusting the process for me. And it is about the journey. Writing a book is the goal for me is to become a more expansive person at the end of it, which is why I try to write outside my personal, uh, you know, purview of my experience so often is because I want to I want to experience this other you know, I have maybe 80 years on this planet, but I want to I want to experience as close as possible. I want to accrue actual experience that's outside the purview of my per- personal experience. So it's all about the. Um, I was never really stressed with how I'm going to pull this off or I just trusted the process. I just knew I just knew that my characters would lead me there. I mean, I needed to have certain guidelines like we started with here, trains mm-hmm. that allowed me to, you know, explore nation building on an east to west uh you know, uh, continuum and then, and, and then to have this train, this journey with these people whose lives are all about to change, you know, to have them all in this one vehicle, you know, moving, you know, it, it, it so there are certain guidelines like that, that really helped me, you know, as long as I have that, again, that's part of the process. I know <clears throat> that as long as I give myself the tools and the opportunities, the characters will lead me there or just hard work will lead me there. It's wow. never tedious though. I love the work. I really do. I'm so grateful. Look, man, I've cleaned septic tanks. I've, I've sorted rotten tomatoes for the United Grocers. I've telemarketed sunglasses. I've been a caregiver, a landscaper, a bartender. And whenever I hear people talk about how hard it is to write a novel, I'm like, man, you've never sorted rotten tomatoes in the 108 degree warehouse. I mean, it's a pleasure and an honor and a, 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 a and you know an entitlement, if anything. And to be able to make my living off it is just the that's the cherry on top. It's not why I do it. It's never was. It's just the it's just the work itself, and I'm so grateful for it. Jonathan, we're grateful to be able to talk to you. It was a pleasure and an honor, and we really enjoyed this book. So thanks for your time, sir. Thanks, Jeff. Very, very much appreciated. Take care.
And that was our chat with Jonathan Evison. We talked about his latest book, Small World, and then we also previously heard from Lisa Scotellini talking about her recent book, What Happened to the Bennetts. That'll do it uh, for this episode of Recapping Author Interviews. We have new content on the horizon, so stay tuned for that. We, of course, thank you for listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, which is brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. We thank John Duffy for giving us music to play at the beginning and end of each episode and we thank of course the friends of the ferndale library if you'd like to support this podcast go to ferndalefriends.org please remember to rate review and subscribe until then happy new year 